0: Welcome back to Vocal Minority, a six-part series where we explore the ways that racism continues to permeate this country's culture. Today, we're joined by Heretia Lumumba, a former AFL footballer who's taking on his former club for the racism he suffered there. He's now coming to you from South Los Angeles, where he feels he's reclaimed the power in his blackness. Heretia, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, this past week's probably been a big one for you. That profile by the ABC was really thorough and I feel like it told your story really well. How's the feedback been?
1: Uh, The feedback's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think it was the first time in, well, definitely was the first time in 16 years of me being reported on where I feel as though it was something was able to capture all the elements that sort of brought me to certain events that were happening throughout the time of my career but also to where i am today and i I guess a lot as well where i was before so it shows a full evolution that um takes in all of the influences so to me it was uh you know it was was a an an amazing process to go through it took about eight weeks of interviews of you know just going back and forward um and yeah, I, I learned a lot about myself in that, but also um, I was able to, in many ways, um, reclaim some power in my own narrative, because there's been so many things that have been incorrect, that are, have been written about me in the media, and we can get into that a bit later. But um, yeah, overall, it was, it, was a, it was a really positive experience.
2: Awesome. And for most of your football career, you went by the anglicized name Harry O'Brien until about, was it 2013?
1: Yeah, towards the end of 2013.
2: Yeah. When you were chatting with the ABC, you clarified that you didn't change your name, you just corrected it. And, you know, I myself have gone through many anglicised kind of nicknames in my lifetime and particularly at school. And coincidentally, it was around that same time that I actually started going by my actual name. Jim as well, I think you sort of switched yeah. around with your last like, name. Well,
0: Bez and I have been talking about this some um, since, you know, saying that we were going to do this interview. Mm. Um, because, you know, I still go by my anglicised last name. Um, in, Ma- in Madagascar, you would actually pronounce it Marl. Instead of Malo, but I, I specifically chose Malo because I wanted white people to be able to spell it, and they they still get it wrong just about every time. So that was mm. particularly powerful for me. Mm.
2: Yeah, and I, I think you know a lot of young black folks can relate to that journey. Um, for me, the journey of sort of um, finally being comfortable with my name and being adamant that people call me by this name, it really cemented for me the power that a name holds. And I think many, um, many, if not all, African cultures use names as a form of manifestation, like for their children, right? So I'm really curious to hear about that cultural and spiritual journey for you. Was there a moment or an event that planted that seed for you? How did you come to that?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I have to say it was a just a, a journey. still is an ongoing journey, but when it comes to my name, um, I was conscious of the moment when it was changed. So that was when I was about nine years old and – um, you know, for reasons I won't necessarily get into, it was changed. And I took on the the last name of, the surname of my stepfather, who's, who's no longer with us. Uh, and given that my name, Eritier, starts with an, eight, with an H, uh, not many people could, <laughs> people just associated, okay, you're Harry, because with H-E-R-I, so hairy Harry, it turned into Harry and it just sort of caught on like wildfire. And I think for the first phase of that, um, I was okay with it. You know, I thought it was okay. This is part of culture. This is normal. Then as I got older, um, and I started to travel because remember, I, I, all of my schooling was in Perth, Western Australia, and I hadn't throughout all of my schooling, I never left Australia and Perth is quite an isolated place, or at least felt that way when I was younger. Um, and I, when I got to Melbourne, um so 2000 at the end of 2004, and I started to, you know, I was earning money. I was independent now. I wasn't living. I was living out of home. Um, I knew how important it was for me to um, take the reins on the journey of uh, discovering who I am, basically, or discovering connecting with my origins, and because I knew I wasn't. That, you know, I knew I knew whatever that was, I wasn't that. I knew I wasn't being told the full story. So um, basically in my off seasons, I would travel, you know, I would go to Brazil, I'd go to Cuba, I'd go to spend time in Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Tobago. I was really fortunate that I, I was able to um, travel in the off seasons and I'd always pick somewhere in the African diaspora or the continent. And um, I just learned a lot about myself seeing myself in different contexts you know quite often um i think when you're in spaces or places that are overwhelmingly white it affects the way you carry yourself i know it did at least for me you know it affects the way i even walked or the way that i spoke or and and for me to go into different black contexts around the world and and see myself in those environments Um, Each time I had those experiences, I've identified more with, okay, I need to lean more into the history of of what it means to be black in this world, not just in Australia, but in this world and what it means to be African. And so I think just along that journey, uh, you know, you start reading literature, you start learning about history, you start reading about um, historical figures, inspiring people, and if you learn about Africa, you're going to learn about Patrice Lumumba. You're going to learn about the Congo and me knowing that my name, um, knowing what my name was and going, not just reading, but also speaking with family and whatnot. um, I began to really understand the significance of that name. So I would say for probably like three years or maybe even more, I, it, it just, it became a thing where I know this is who I am, and it just started to grow. It was like it was like a, um, a flame. It was lit, and then it turned into like this burning fire. Where it was like, now you can't ignore this. This is who you are, and this is this is your power. And you and you have to you have to claim that. You know, you have to correct what that culture, what the culture that didn't necessarily accept that or didn't hadn't didn't know how to be with that. You have to correct that. So yeah that was um the journey for me your name is a is a is a vibration you know every time Mm -hmm. you repeat it it's an affirmation and i think um when you can rearrange your life so symbols and um yeah i'll say symbols because the power of symbols so if, if a if a picture tells a thousand words then a symbol tells a thousand pictures you know and your name is a symbol and so, like, if you can arrange symbols around your life of who you are, things of strength, whether it's from your own culture or from things that are culturally significant to you, like images of, of people and whatnot, and even your own name, then that has the ability to just raise your your consciousness immediately because these symbols tell a thousand pictures, and that, and then, then that's the way you start to relate with the world. And the name is is really uh, is is been a really powerful tool for me, yeah.
2: Nice. And I think coming into your own as a black person and being more outspoken like you have been um, also means having to grapple with both creating discomfort in others, whether it's with your words or, um, you know, your opinions or just simply your presence, um, but also being constantly dismissed and gaslit you know and it's a scary thought for many young black folks especially when you're in predominantly white environments for me personally i found that you know finding community here in melbourne was hugely affirming and helpful how did you personally deal with it
1: um so for me definitely community was really important um community and with community comes culture too so for me to connect with community for example community of afro-brazilians in my early days in melbourne uh, when, uh, you know, I was new to the environment and new to the profession of being pro- um, an athlete, what I found was that going into spaces, you know, different communities where that doesn't mean anything. Like people don't, in, in, for Brazilians, people don't know, don't really, it's, they're not, mostly, and this is generalizing, but, you know, I, I, I'd be confident to say that um, most Brazilians and the Brazilians I was around our afro brazilians you know their number one sport was soccer so what i did was like oh whatever and I, because I, I didn't that dynamic wasn't there i was able to um just practice my culture you know like practice percussion um play i've played in a couple of samba bands um as a percussionist i played different percussive instruments and you know i'm not i wouldn't say i'm the best percussionist in the world but just the expression of my culture was something that um it, it it released the tension that that I was experiencing from the discrimination that was around me so you know that, that was in the early days also um you know i spending time in Footscray, for example in in um in in melbourne just being in black spaces um, and i think with the advent of um, social media 2.0 if you want to call it that you know when I, when i think about facebook and instagram or I would say the ability of the new social media tools at the time to help organize people. There were new spaces that were being created because of how easy people could connect online. And, you know, I, I was really fortunate that, you know, there were, there were um, events like the Pan-African poets cafe that was uh, run by Sister Zai. Uh, you know, I, my God, that sister is, is so special. Like, I, I get really um, emotional when I think about it, it's because of the, um, that was like such a, uh, a safe place, a place for me, you know, it did mm. so much for me um, mm. as well for the, um, like the, there were other places, like if I can, you know, really acknowledge um, the still nomads and, you know, the crew, There mm. was the crew there that they were, it was always, and generally it was, it was the women that were taking control, like sisters desires the women that were creating community and, and I was benefiting from it. Um, so you know I was really um fortunate of those safe spaces and um, you know i i would just i would I've just given a few examples as well uh, but that's just to give you a general overview of of some of the things that were available to me the other things that i other than community you know, I was a um, someone that took up meditation and I did that um, from two thousand and nine and I got a lot of benefits from that you know just going inside, finding stillness, understanding that um, you know, your thoughts can come and go, but you don't have to attach to them. So learning that skill um, and yeah, I think it was a holistic approach in the end, but those were definitely the pillars of it.
2: You know, I think um, people tend to struggle with the idea of systemic racism as opposed to like individual one-on-one racism. Um, what has institutional racism looked like for you?
1: Um, I would say institutional racism. For me, when I think of the the main institution that um, had influence on my life, I think of uh, I think of the AFL, and I extend that to the media. I extend that to um, even the grassroots, if you want to call it that. Because as a as a um, as a child, you know, I, on the football field, I had to go through levels of discrimination that no one should have to, and the afl as i guess an institution it has its tentacles that reach throughout all the grassroots so um for me when i got older and in the professional league what the way that it manifested was i guess uh, just a just a lack of comp- cultural competency and when you think of institutions and powerful institutions you think that they have resources and when an institution doesn't prioritize cultural competency with its resources, it just has a trickle down effect throughout all levels. So you ha- not only do you have the interpersonal discrimination that happens in the workplace where people are saying jokes or inappropriate things, but then you don't have um, any um, appropriate or necessary processes uh, to, to give people support and safety within those workplaces. But then when I think of um, in the AFL, you have, and yeah media that covers the AFL. I remember during my career there was a stat that they would always keep that which was that there were more um, AFL journalists than there were players. you know so that's a, it's a lot of people and again, if that body of people have not do not have the cultural competency uh, and if, if, with, if they're within a culture that doesn't adequately uh, value, anti-racism then that's going to have a trickle down effect in the way that they approach their job you know so you have a media industry as well um that's connected um and then you you have it again with key decision makers where you think whether you're thinking of administrators you have um you know everyone from board members within the board members presidents you have uh recruiters coaches all of that so that's the way it shows up it I guess it's, it's long-winded, but, um, you know, we could break down institutional racism and the effect of it for, for a whole uh, show, you know what I mean? So, but um, that's the way that I would see it.
0: And um, what was it like for you having to face this racism from, you know, the the institution, um, you know, then going to the media and having people uh, either repeat or sort of um, uh, perpetuate racist ideas about you, and then also from like the public and fans, like what was that like for you personally? <laughs> Man.
1: Um- i'll say at the time it was just my reality you know like I, i'm just like this is what i'm this is i don't know anything else this is and that's the thing it I, racism was around from as early as i can remember remember you know i was being traumatized from it from some of my earliest childhood memories so it was just it's just this is just the world i live in you know you're going to find it every single way you go um especially when it's when it's uh places that uh where the institutions um, are dominated by um, by white people, uh, that's that's just the reality. No matter where I go in the world, uh, racism is there. Like here, where I am, South LA, racism is here. Um, but when it comes to some of the more unique challenges of it being visible and there being the media component, that um, yeah, man, it was it was challenging. Like I had I had time. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how, you know, like some of the, some of the um, stresses that were on me and I was just, I had to perform as well. So what it did do was it made me value self-care. It made me become scientific about it because being a pro athlete anyway, it, half of your job is to recover and, and to prepare adequately. And to prepare just means to be in good health. You know, to recover just means following good health practices. And I I became really obsessed with um, science. You know, I became obsessed with finding about acquiring knowledge that I could use and then apply in my life to basically reduce stress. And um, yeah, I mean, that's what it did. That's what it did. That's how. That's how it was. Um, And I'd say the other the other important component about it is man, we, this is what we go through, you know, like it's, it. I, I never felt at, sometimes you can have thoughts of why is this happening to me, but you, you don't It's really important not to individualize it or take it personal in many ways, even though it's hard in, in the moment, but man, we've been going through this, you know, like this is, this is just, this is just, this is just our reality. Like from, from, from the history of, uh, of interactions between white people and and people of African descent that's just that's just what has always happened and I felt in good company you know to know that people like Dave Chappelle or people like um you know you you could rattle off just a whole list of different people that have had to face similar um types of um, challenges similar types of discrimination and 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 the way that racism affects them so
0: that's um a partic- like a particularly powerful way to sort of look at it. I think is that, um you know we're not um, alone. It's and it's not personal. It's not about our, our personal failings. It's uh, more the, the, the moral failings of um the the white power structure. But um. Another thing that I thought that you you have done is particularly, you know, like a a strong move to make and something that would have taken a lot of guts was um, refusing to participate in um, Collingwood's review. I mean, to me that, um, particularly from a white power structure, I would think that would open you up to all sorts of different um, criticism that uh, is probably unfairly levelled against you. I mean, what was it about um, refusing to, or why was it that you refused to participate? Um,
1: So the first thing as to why I refused to is because... The truth, I know Collingwood knows the truth of what happened. You know, like the racism, yes, racism was within the organisation. Yeah, racism is within society. And to suggest that I didn't experience it when there's been six other players, that former teammates that have backed those claims, it, it, it was just, to me, that was an indicator of their good faith. And, you know, I, I don't have any... I, I said it at the time, you know, I don't have any desire to try to convince them of a truth that they already know. And, um, you know, I, I think that one of the other key components to it is that you think about it, it should uh, racist police departments get to, uh, get to investigate themselves, you know, and determine what is and what isn't racism or whether or not my experience happened or didn't happen, that to me isn't due process, you know, that's not the way things happen. You don't get to all of a sudden call and say, okay, now we're going to do an investigation. So the way that it's turned out is it's actually a review as far as, you know, what I've, what I've come across is that, um, it's a review and that, um, you know, it's more of a general overview of the practices of, of the organization. Uh so, you know, we'll see what happens that I believe it's the results are due to come in sometime soon, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but yeah, I, I just, just to sum it all up, um, the good faith went out of it when there were lies made up about me, when it was just blatant, it was very easy just to say, yeah, look, we could have been better. We messed up. It, that, that was the, it didn't have to roll into what it is now. But unfortunately that's just the way it works and it is what it
0: is do you think um the afl your club uh, your former club uh you know white society at large is likely to change
1: um well i see change as like a never-ending moment you know so it is changing whether whether it's at the pace that we want it to be well uh, i don't know and whether it's the, the direction or the way we want it to change i don't know but there is something happening and I think in moments like this, where you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, there is a global discussion uh, around racism. Uh, it, it's just, I think these are defining moments where you have to make a decision: do you want to be someone that can influence change? And I think that, um, for me, I, I for me, I, you know, I, I didn't get justice for what had taken place, and. Collingwood and the AFL and um, to the greater degree that the industry needs to improve its standards just to do the the, all I was asking for is just for the bare minimum and one of the most uh, disturbing things for me is that I just think of all the other institutions within Australia I think of all of the you know all of the workplaces that exist and what I'm going through, something that's visible, but we know that there's far worse out there than than you know, what I've gone through. Yeah, on paper it may look, oh God, how did you? But I, there's far worse cases of of racism that have happened, people losing their lives, you know. So um, I, I I see what it is, and um, you know I I feel empowered to know that I'm not alone in this fight, that this is something that people go through every day. So, Mm.
2: yeah. And uh, what's in store for you for 2021? Um, Where do you see your activism work sort of taking you and do you see yourself living in Australia again?
1: Um, So 2021, right now, the pandemic uh, has intensified in in terms of cases uh, that have been reported. Um, it's hard, kind of, to imagine things going back to how how it was in many ways for 2021. Even I feel like some of these issues are, um, I, yeah. I feel like, in terms of the, the coronavirus itself, um, it, yeah. There's just so much uncertainty uncertainty in the air here in the United States. So I, it's hard for me to sort of envision. Okay, this is what I'll be doing in 2021. But when it comes to um, the work that with the communities that I'm connected with, uh, I, you know, I'm connected with different communities in Brazil and um, in the Congo, um, in Australia as well, here in the United States. And I'm always, forever exploring, exploring ways that I can be of use or I can provide some value to whatever efforts of um, justice or, or um, self-determination that that people that I'm connected to uh, are fighting towards so for, for me um, it's for the last almost two years I've uh, I've done some work with an indigenous organization non-government organization and you know I've been working as a translator in some ways connecting indigenous folks in in Brazil with indigenous folks here in the United States or even throughout South America, um, you know, translating or just being someone that can um, just make make links and provide support um, in whatever way I can. So I'll definitely be always looking to stay connected to different communities that I'm connected to. And I think just in the face of the uncertainty that we face, uh, that, that the world faces, with particularly here in the United States, it's just, um, for me, it's just staying ready, you know, and what does staying ready mean? I think about that. That was the attitude I had that got me through all of the challenges and adversities that I faced through when I was playing football and I never lost that, you know, for me, staying ready is just means don't let yourself slip, you know, stay sharp, you know, keep, keep on top of your health, keep on top of your thoughts, you know, reach out to, to your family, to your loved ones keep that harmony in your life and that will carry through with all the decisions that you make going forward and you know that's 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 what that's i guess that's the intention and that's the you know what i put out there and that's what i see for, for 2021 for sure
0: thanks man appreciate it um thanks like for taking the time to talk to us and best of luck um you've been listening to Heritier Lamumba, activist and former afl footballer you can find him on twitter at i'm lumumba and this is vocal minority on 3 triple r